0: So our family in our house has a few idioms, you know, sayings that you would regularly hear. Uh, Some of which my kids love, my wife loves, some of which are not so much. Uh, Maybe that's true in every family, but for instance, uh, when our kids say thank you for something, we always say the exact same phrase. We say, thanks for saying thanks, we love it when you're grateful. And they don't mind it, and it's a little corny, it's a little dad jokey, but we just repeat that. I just wanna reinforce, like, thanks for saying thanks, we love it when you're grateful. Another one that they use regularly is they'll say, like, but I didn't try to insert, you know, bad thing the child does. And I always say to them, we want you to try not to. <laughs> and it drives them absolutely crazy. So when one of my sons says, to her, I didn't try to hurt her, I always say, I want you to try not to hurt her. I didn't try to break it. I want you to try not to break it. <laughs> That's not one that they absolutely love that much. Parents, this is this is like parenting gold. You should be writing this stuff down. Seriously, it's gold, absolute gold. Another little phrase that's become popular in our house over the last couple of years, Uh, it's actually really simple and I think it could revolutionize our home. So I'm gonna teach it to you uh, and then hopefully we can practice a little bit together. It goes like this, TikTok will make you dumb. (laughs) Right, let's let's practice it together, you ready? TikTok will make you dumb. (laughs) It's all about the inflection. You really gotta get that right in order for it to have the the required effect. (laughs) I really wanted to go like, so viral? Maybe I should post it on TikTok to see if I can get that phrase. TikTok, will make it dumb. I don't see it happening. My kids don't actually love that one. But we say it because for all of my kids, all of them, at, at ages that were way too young, they began hounding us for social media on their app, on their apps and on their tablets and on their phones and all these different things, right? And so we started saying this really... In response to that, in response particularly to TikTok, there was a season where I was regularly, almost every day, receiving on my phone an approval request from my kids saying, can I please get this app, (laughs) you know? And I have a choice of either approve or deny. I really wanted there to be like a vocal response I could do where I could say like, TikTok will make you dumb. (laughs) But it's just approve or deny. Even my sons, my daughter really still really wants TikTok. And, and even my sons, her older brothers have, have tried to convince her, Just it's not it's not worth it. They, they've come to the realization that it is a deep, dark hole that draws you into endless scrolling and has absolutely no stop cues everywhere. Even if you try to leave, you can't, it sucks you back in. It's like Michael Corleone in The Godfather. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. That's the worst Godfather. I've never actually seen the movie. But what I'm saying is TikTok is the mafia of social media. That's my, that's my main point. <laughs> and even though we've explained this to our kids, we've explained the science behind this to our kids, you know, we, the science is getting more and more firm. We know now that adolescence and social media never ends well when mixed together exposure to these things that they don't need to be seeing at their age. I mean, things that are bad, but also, you know, like we talked about last week, these, these ideas of toxic masculinity and unrealistic femininity, these things that are just simply not healthy for them, that lead to higher levels of anxiety and depression, higher levels of attention deficit and brain rewiring. We've told our kids this. They know that. We've told them that famous Apple employees have said that they would never let their kids have iPhones, that's crazy, right? I mean, that's, that's nuts. We've told them that Facebook has done the research. They know and have actively concealed the research that proves that their product is harmful for everyone, but especially children. We've told them this. We know it, they know it, but they always have the exact same response in the face of my overwhelmingly amazing parenting. Always the same response. You've probably heard this. But I really want it and all my friends have it, right? Stand strong, you can do this, Jason. But it's true. I mean, they know in their heads that it's not good, it's not good for them, but they still want it. They think that somehow they're going to be the exception to the statistics, that they will somehow not have those negative effects. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Why do we always seem to want what we shouldn't have? And it's not just kids, we all do it, I mean, it's human nature. I know plenty of adults who spend way too much time on social media. Hey, grandparents, it's bad for your brains too and your relationship with your kids and with your grandkids and even with each other. And it's not just social media. It's in all kinds of areas. I, I, I do it myself in all kinds of areas. It's like I never learned. If I had a dollar or if my wife had a dollar for every time she had to say it to be something like, what did you think was going to happen when you ate a whole deep dish pizza at midnight, washed it down with a Coke, and then went to bed? Like, of course you feel terrible. You're like 60 years old. How do you not know this? How have you never learned that lesson? I actually want to have a t-shirt that made that just says, never learns, but I think I'd probably have to have lots made because I'm guessing there are lots of wives if they had a dollar for every time, right? Oh, I've just employed toxic gender stereotypes. I'm sorry. Fortunately, scripture has a lot to say on the subject, and today we're going to continue in the series "Chronicles of the Kings," uh, an OT summer mixtape, walking through the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, looking at how these imperfect characters lived their lives, and asking what we can learn from them and from the mistakes that they made. Chris in week one said this: "We can learn from our mistakes of the past, or we can repeat them." Today we're going to look at one of the stories from the, the book of First Samuel that I think could shed some light on my story, on our story as a human race, and then we'll be invited to either learn from the mistakes or inevitably repeat them. It's one of the stories from it's one of the stories of uh, the prophet Samuel. I invite you to turn with me. The book of Samuel starts right at the end uh, of kind of the, the period in which judges led the nation of Israel, and, and overall, during this season where the judges ruled, Israel had kind of fallen apart spiritually, politically, they fallen apart as a nation. And Samuel's story is so interesting. It starts off with this miraculous birth that we heard about a couple of weeks ago, a lifelong vow that, that Samuel would be a Nazarite, that he would be set apart for God, set apart even physically. He, he would never be allowed to cut his hair, so that you, when you saw them, you knew this was a Nazarite. They were never allowed to let wine touch their lips or any hard drink. In fact, they couldn't even eat grapes. Their whole life was modeled around setting themselves apart from the rest of culture. He he was given that vow uh, as an infant. And, And with Samuel, he was being groomed to simply be a temple assistant. But as you read the story, as the story unfolds, he becomes so much more than that. He goes on to be Israel's last judge and her very first prophet to serve as a priest and as an advisor to kings, to lead the nation to repent and to turn away from other gods. And and his story is full of all these crazy battles. And and as we learned last week, so many violent battles, these intense battles. And one of them, the Israelites bring the Ark of the Covenant with them into the battle. Uh, I'm going to read a section here. This is from 1 Samuel 4. The Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. After the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp, and the elders of Israel asked, "Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines?" Then they said, "Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle, it will save us from our enemies." You can almost picture them like, "Why would God ever allow us to be defeated? It couldn't be the possibly like that we worship other gods and live as total reprobates, right? I know." Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant in. Then it will save us. I'm pretty sure it is magic. But of course, it doesn't work. Because this isn't, you know, Harry Potter's magical world of wizarding. (laughs) With the Hogwarts t-shirt over here. And it ends badly. In fact, when the Philistines see it, it inspires them to fight even harder. And that day, 30,000 of Israel's men were killed. Which we're going to pick up the story. I invite you to turn with me to 1 chap, uh, Samuel, chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible at home, I would invite you. The Bible app from Version is absolutely wonderful. And BibleGateway.com is a great website. So, turn with me to chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. The men of Israel have come to Samuel. And they said, Samuel, what do we do? We keep getting trounced by these Philistines. We even tried the thing with the ark, and that didn't work at all. And Samuel 7, starting in verse says this, oh boy, I'm gonna need my glasses for this business. Chapter 7, starting in verse 3, then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth, turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone, then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshiped only the Lord. They come to Samuel and say, what do we do? And he says, you have to repent. You have to literally get rid of these things that you're worshiping with your lives. Only then will God honor and bless you in this battle, will give you the victory that he wants to give you. And so they do, They, they cry out to God in repentance. They acknowledge both his sovereignty, but also their sin. And God gives them this incredible, like doesn't even make sense by the numbers victory over the Philistines. And it was obvious that it wasn't their their military might. They were overpowered. They had inferior weapons. There was no way that they were going to win this war, this battle. And so it's obvious to everyone that God had given them this victory. And going on, jumping ahead to verse 12. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between them, between the towns of Mitzvah and Jashnachah. He said, he named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. For he said, up until this point, the Lord has helped us. Samuel builds a monument, a big monument of stone to declare, to remind future generations that it is God who has brought us to this point. This is where we get the lyric for the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. This monument that they raise is a monument to God's faithfulness for them and for others to see. There's a place to write this in your notes. I think monuments can help us remember not to stay dumb. Chris, in week one, challenged us to don't stay dumb. (laughs) Monuments can help. I know in my life, there have been times where I've had moments of experiencing God in the midst of darkness. and In that moment, you recognize that that is a monument moment. We can erect these monuments so so that others can see God's faithfulness, and that we could be reminded in those moments that sometimes it's easy to forget. I told a story a couple of years ago uh, of a church that I was at a long time ago now uh, where a young family in the church tragically lost their, their daughter uh, in, a, in a tragic accident. It was so hard, but in the midst of that pain, in, in the midst of that grieving, we as a church, I as a pastor, and they even as a family experienced God in remarkable Ways They experience God's presence, God's comfort, God's sustaining of them. I got to see the church truly be the church, the hands and feet of Christ to this family. And I realized this is a monument moment. So I and several other guys, friends of mine, said we need to erect a monument in our own lives so that we remember this moment. I chose to have the word Ebenezer tattooed on my arm so that every time I saw that, I would be reminded of that moment when I experienced God so profoundly and all the guys chose different ways. What's interesting to me is it's amazing how often I'll be in a restaurant and a server says like, tell me the story. What does Ebenezer mean? Are you like a Scrooge fan? (laughs) Like no, that's a whole other story. And I get to recount for them the faithfulness of God. I get to recount for them how I, I saw the church being the church. I saw us at our best. It's a testimony to the world and a reminder to us. Back to Samuel's story. The people have repented. They've turned back to God. They've recognized uh, the godly leadership of Samuel. They've recognized that he's been appointed by God. And chapter seven ends this way. Samuel continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. Each year he traveled around, setting up his court, first at Bethel, then at Gilgal, and then at Mitzpah. He judged the people of Israel at each of these places. Then he returned to his home at Ramah, And you'd hear cases there too. And Samuel built an altar to the Lord at Ramah. He's building monuments, he's building altars everywhere he goes, everywhere he experiences God. And there's peace in the land, all is well. Until the next chapter starts. (laughs) Chapter eight, verse one, the very next verse. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father. They were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. While Samuel had led the nation well, apparently he hadn't led his family well. And now his sons are doing the very same dumb things that Eli's sons had done generations or decades before at the beginning of Samuel's story. We're seeing this pattern repeat of godly men whose, whose children simply do not carry it forward. Next verse. Finally, all the elders of Israel met with, at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you're now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they're rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they've continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you that same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And yet, I mean, on some level, it makes sense, right? I mean, you can identify a little bit with, with them. I mean, this whole period of the judges has not gone very well. <laughs> they, they, it's landed them in sort of dis, disarray as a nation, disarray spiritually. And they're looking around at all these nations around them and they're saying, they have more money, they have more power, they have bigger military, they have better weapons. They have a king. I mean, things were good when Samuel was at the held, but now these two knuckleheaded sons of his are messing everything up. And they're basically saying, you know, enough of this. Can we just do this like the proven, the tried and true way, the way that everybody else is doing it? It seems reasonable. So why is Samuel displeased? I mean, he had to know that his sons were like just a dumpster fire <laughs> as leaders, right? Everyone knew they were, they were mistreating judgment. And why, and why does God say they're, not, they're rejecting me, not you? Why, why does he go back to the Egypt story? Well, I think in order to do that, we need to go back a little bit further in the story. You see, at this time, kings were defined. One of the ways that kings were defined, one of the ways that kings were marked is that it was the king whose responsibility it was and whose honor it was to lead their troops into battle. In fact, they would send ahead these runners, these boys that would run ahead announcing, like, here comes King Jason, so that everyone would know when this battle was won, it was King Jason who led the fight. He would get the credit. The battle would belong to that king. But the problem is Israel had no king. Israel had never in its history ever had a king. In fact, their experience with kings had been mostly really bad news. When God led Israel out of Egypt, he had provided a leader in Moses who had, you know, sort of a provisional authority over them for a season for the journey. He had given Joshua provisional leadership power over the army, but it's really clear in the book of Joshua that even as they enter the promised land, his authority, his power was still subordinate to the angel of the Lord, to the commander of the Lord's army. While each tribe had a leader, there was no central authority over all of Israel, no king, because God was their king. The central authority belonged to God and to God alone. The IVP Bible background says it this way. The fact that God was seen as raising up military leaders and that God was the one who brought about the victories demonstrate that God was the one who was the king leading out armies in battle. The fact that he did this is proof that he saw himself as king and expected them to see him as king. Victory in battle is assured if the, leader was, if the Lord was pleased with Israel. By making the request, the leaders are implying that God has been less than successful in bringing victory, and somehow a king will do a better job. It's offensive when they're accusing him of being a failure as a king. There's another idiom that you oftentimes hear parents say, and I think it's well-intentioned, you know. Parents will say to their kids, I can't fight your battles for you. Right? And I've said it, and maybe that's true in human households, right? None of us wants to be like tiger mom or helicopter parents or whatever. But I think this story perhaps illustrates that God can fight our battles for us and with us and lead us into the battles. I mean, the Israelites still had a role to play, they still had to fight. But it was God who gave them the victory. There's a, place, there's a place to write this down. God wants to give us his victory over our enemies. Last week, we sang the, the old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I love the, the lyric of the second verse. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing It's not that there's not a role for us. It's not that we don't have to do the work. But if we're placing our confidence in ourselves and in our strength, then even the striving we do is for naught. God wants to give us his victory over his enemy. God wants to fight our battles. And you know what? God always wins. (laughs) But it may not be the victory we want, but he always wins. I mean, so often we want God to give us the victory that we want. And I would challenge us to, to, to look at that and say, you know, the victories that I want in my life might be an indicator of the kings that I have in my life. <laughs> like, God, give me that job. God, give me that promotion. God, I, I, give me that bigger, better house, that whatever it is. Where we want victory might be an indicator of where we've placed our allegiances. God wants to give us his kingdom, his victory, the victory that we really need for his glory and for our good. Yes, we have to fight too, but our primary role is to remain faithful in acknowledging him and trusting in him and not trying to win the battle on our own by our own strength. That striving would be losing. The battle belongs to the Lord. And that battle looks different for probably all of us. Very few of us are fighting Philistines these days, thankfully, right? It might be obvious. It might be an addiction. It might be the hurt that has been done to us or the hurt that we've done to others. It might be the internal battles, the voices that we all hear, the voices that that success looks like more power, more prestige, more stuff, a better car, but God wants to give us his victory. Back to Israel's story. Verse 10, so Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Here comes King Jason. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops, and some will make his weapons and his chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He'll take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He'll take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He'll demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king that you are demanding. But then the Lord won't hear you. God God is saying, I know you think you want it, but do you count the cost you really want this? Why do we always want something we shouldn't have? I think God is saying there's a steep, steep cost to what you're asking. It's interesting, as I was reading that list, I mean, so many of those things are are the very things that God had said he wanted to receive from the people. The first fruits, the 10%, the tithe, the finest animal, and now the king is going to demand those things and puts these people in a very difficult position. They can't do both. You have to choose a king, choose wisely. This isn't a new message. Generations before, when Israel was in the wilderness, under Moses' leadership, preparing to enter into this new and foreign land, God had warned them back in the book of Deuteronomy 17, saying these words, you're about to enter into the land your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us, like all the other nations around us. It's verbatim what they asked for, right? Then he went on to elaborate rules and guidelines for the king. If you must have a king, the king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they'll turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. Even in the stories you've already looked at, we know that immediately the king started doing exactly this, right? I mean, how many of those things did David violate? All of them. (laughs) Every single one of them. Back to Samuel's story. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle like you failed to do, God. It's insult to injury. It's salt in the wound. We want a king and it's not you to lead us into battle, to lead us as a nation. We want a political solution, not a spiritual solution. We want to be like the nations around us. It's basically my kid's argument, but we want it. All of our friends have kings, (laughs) So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. And Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Here we see Samuel leading them one last time, leading them into perhaps one of the more tragic transitions they experienced as a nation, from theocracy to monarchy. Under theocracy, God was king, Leadership was provided by judges, but now under monarchy, power is institutionalized. Power is inherited, it's hereditary. And we've just seen two stories of fathers who were great men who were not able to have sons that could rise to the occasion. And now that's the system, (laughs) right? There's a place to write this down. What was true 4,000 years ago is still true today. What are the desires that we have. I mean, what are the battles that we're fighting? What are the victories that we're trying to have in our lives? What are the ways in which you and I try to manipulate God? You know, kind of bringing our own Ark of the Covenant, thinking that if we just, like, somehow religiousify this, if we just pray for this, if we, you know, whatever, then then somehow we're going to get the victory that we want. Sort of magical thinking. Are there areas in our lives, in our relationships, in our careers? in our families where we think maybe we could do a better job than God. Well, while, while we may not think we don't have idols, while we think we probably don't have idols, there are lots of things I know in my life where I find my security, my identity, my comfort, my agenda. There are lots of areas in my life to whom I give a great deal of my time, energy, money, trust. And that sounds a whole lot like idols. Where do we, like the Israelites in our lives, need to take down the images of Baal and Ashtoreth and toxic masculinity and tragic beauty? And these things that culture has called so normal, these things that culture has told us is the way to attain happiness and worth and value and identity. Where do we need to actively take those down and once again turn our hearts and our minds and our lives and our hearts and say, God, be thou my vision. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. High king of heaven, be my only king, the only king of my life. Where do we need to say like Samuel said in response to God, speak Lord, your servant is listening. So back to Samuel's story, he does what they ask. Samuel makes Saul king, he anoints him as king, the first king, and it doesn't go well. Samuel is no longer their leader. This era, this time, this season where where Israel was led by judges has now come to an end and Samuel gives a farewell speech. Chapter 12, he says this, and Samuel addressed all of Israel. I've done as you asked and I've given you a king. The king is now your leader. I stand before you, an old gray-haired man, and my sons serve you. I've served as your leader from the time I was a boy to this very day. And then he goes on to remind them of the story, the same story that God recounted to him. He says, You know, God led us out of Egypt, and all along the way, all during that time, we have turned and served other gods. Are we never going to learn? <laughs> when we follow Yahweh, life is good. When we don't, life stinks. <laughs> How are we not learning this lesson? Don't say dumb. Learn from our mistakes. Learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before us. And then Samuel asks, and, I, and I'm curious on this, why Samuel does this, but he asks God to provide a miraculous sign so that the people will know that this was not just Samuel speaking. This is the word of God. This is the will of God, that they would hear these words. And so God provides this miraculous storm, and everyone's absolutely terrified, and they realize, oh, no, we have sinned. We have offended the Creator. We have made a horrible mistake in this moment. And Samuel says these words. Don't be afraid, Samuel reassured them. You've certainly done wrong, but make sure now that you worship the Lord with all your heart and don't turn your back on him. Don't go back to worshiping the worthless idols that cannot help or rescue you. They're totally useless. I love this. The Lord will not abandon his people because that would dishonor his great name for it pleases the Lord, for it has pleased the Lord to make you his very own people. God wants to give us his victory over our battles for his sake and his glory and his fame and for our good. There's so much good news in this. There's so much good news in this sort of otherwise kind of downer of farewell speech. It's good news because there's so many people in this story who like me seem to never learn, who continually go into this cycle of forgetting of not seeing the monuments in their lives, of facing the consequences of their poor choices, who unnecessarily cause pain to themselves and to others. And yet, this ministry, this time of leadership ends with Samuel reminding them, God will never abandon us. He has chosen us and he welcomes us back if we will return to him, if we will get rid of the idols in our lives, whatever they are, and make him king once again. He wants to give us his victory over our enemies, whatever they are. There's one last fill-in, and I think it's beautiful. I hope it makes sense to you. We may never learn, but God will never fail. And when I shared that with Chris, he's like, I'm not sure that's hopeful. (laughs) We'll never learn? Apparently not, not perfectly. (laughs) But God is good, and God is faithful, and God is just. God wants to give us his victory over our enemies if we're willing to face our real enemies. If we'll bring our sin, our idols, our failures before God, our shortcomings, our inability to actually live up to our commitments before Scripture says he's faithful and he's just to forgive us, it is his battle. The New Testament is full of stories that that say that, that in Christ, we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. He has made us and is making us into his righteousness. And that he, this artisan who began that good work in us, he will make that all complete in us if we remain faithful to him, if we will make him king of our lives. And at least for me, that is a daily exercise. There can only be one king of your life, you or God. <laughs> Choose wisely. Samuel then gives him his vision of what that kind of community could look like, what it would look like for people who truly made God their only king, no matter what their political culture is. When we have one king, God, then we as individuals and as a community are marked by our set-apartness, not by how long our hair is or whether or not we drink wine or eat grapes or you know, any of those Nazarite things. We're set apart as a priestly kingdom, a city on a hill, offering the light and the hope of Jesus Christ to the world. We are ambassadors of Christ. When we have one king who is God, we are marked not by our political parties, but by our kingdom lives. When we have one king who is God, we are marked by our unity in a culture of division and known for our love in a world where there is so much hate. When we have one king who is God, he is making us into his likeness to be his image bearers to this world. God promises that if we will allow him to truly be our one and only king, that's the kind of community that he will build for his glory and our good. I wanna read just the very last statement that that Samuel has in his farewell speech. And, And again, I think there's hope in it, there's beauty in it, and there's warning in it. Next verse, he says, As for me, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers. Even though you've abandoned me, you've rejected me, I'm gonna keep praying for you. I'm gonna keep praying that God would align you to himself. I'll continue to teach you what is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and faithfully serve him. Think of all the wonderful things he's done for you. But if you continue to sin, you and your king will be swept away. Think of all the wonderful things that God has done. Build monuments to those moments those monument moments where we can look back and say, I saw God, I experienced God. And when I'm tempted, I'm going to see that monument and remember and tell the story of God's faithfulness. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word and for the fact that you've filled these stories with so many imperfect characters that we can identify with. God, we acknowledge as the the author of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing acknowledge that we are prone to wander. And we ask you, God, that you would bind our hearts to you, that, that you would forgive us for the fact that we are so easily led astray. And that God, even in this moment, we would invite you to once again take the throne. God, help us to make room to remove the things in our life that need to go away, so that you would be primary over all of it. We ask in the name of Jesus, Amen.